Bhagavate Sri Arna Chalaramanaya. Um, today I'm going to be talking about the fifth verse of, um, <coughs> of uh, Uludunapadu. Um, in this verse, Bhagavan makes an important clarification about what he means by the term body. That is, Bhagavan often said that ego is the, the thought or the false awareness, I am this body. But what he meant by body is not just the physical body. As he says in this verse, Udul Pancha Koza Uru, the body is a form of five sheaves. Um, the five sheaves that he refers to here are what are the technical terms are, the five sheaves is the panchakosa, and the technical terms for these panchakosas are the uh, anamaya kosha, that is the sheath composed of food, namely the physical body, the pranamaya kosha, the sheath composed of life, namely all the physiological functions in the body, breathing, etc. Um, <coughs> uh, the manamaya kosha, the uh, sheath composed of mind. Um, in this context, mind means the grosser functions of the mind, that is the perceptions, memories, thoughts, uh, feelings, uh, emotions, and so on. Um, <coughs> uh, so that's the third one. The fourth one is the vijnanamaya kosha, also called the buddhi, that is the intellect. That, that Vijnanamaya Kosha means the, the Vijnana in this context means the distinguishing knowledge. So the, that, that intellect is that which, uh, the discerning or distinguishing function of the mind, um, that which uh, judges, discriminates, um, distinguishes one thing from another. That is the intellect and therefore the reasons and uh, so on. Uh, that's the Vijnanamaya Kosha. And each of these, each one of these is more subtle than the previous one. The most subtle of all is the uh, Anandamaya Kosha, uh, the sheath composed of happiness, which is also called the Karana Sarira, the causal body. That is the will. It consists of all the Vasanas. Vasanas are the seeds that give rise to all likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. So all likes, dislikes, desires, and attachments in their seed form are vasanas, that is the inclinations. Um, so that's what the, the Anandamaya Kosha uh, consists of. The reason it is called the Karana Sarira is that the, the, the Vishaya vasanas, the inclinations to experience and to seek happiness in uh, Vishayas, and that means in you know, objects or phenomena, anything other than ourselves. Um, <coughs> those Vishaya Vasanas are the seeds that give rise to all Vishayas, all objects, all phenomena. So it is the cause for the appearance of all this multiplicity. Um, <coughs> so of these five sheaths, as I say, each one is more subtle than the previous one. More subtle than the physical body is the life that animates it. More subtle than the life that animates it is the mind. More subtle than the mind is the intellect. More subtle than the intellect is the will. <clears throat> and of course, more subtle than the will is ego. Ego is that which takes all these five as itself. Um, so the 
for mind, intellect, and will are some sorry, mind, intellect, will, and ego are sometimes collectively referred to as um, the antakarana. That is manum buddhichitamanahankaram. They're called the antakarana, the inner instrument. But of the, of the, the four functions of this inner instrument, three of them are sheaths. Uh, ego is not a sheath. It is that which takes all the five sheaths as I. So the function of ego is the abhimanam, the, the attachment to and identification with these five sheaths. So why does Bhagavan say, say that the body is a, a form composed of five sheaths? Because whenever we experience ourselves as a body, firstly, it's always a living body. So the, the life, it's not just a, a dead uh, body, it's a, a living body. So it's not just the, the physical form of the body, it's also the life that animates it. And we never experience a body as I, except when we seem to be awake. That is, even in dream, when we experience a body as I, we seem to be awake. Um, but as Bhagavan made clear, any state that of what, what seems to us be uh, waking, that is any state in which we are aware of objects or phenomena, is a, actually a state of dream. Um, so, um, uh, we we in whenever we experience a body as I, we seem to be awake, but we are actually dreaming, and because we uh, seem to be awake and are actually dreaming, not only is the um, is the life functioning within the body, the mind, intellect, and the will are also functioning within the body, driving the body. So all these five collectively are what Bhagavan refers to as the body. That is, we never experience ourselves as any of these five sheaves without experiencing ourselves as all of them. So they collectively, they are, these make up what is called the body. Therefore, in the next sentence, he says, uh, that means, therefore, Aindum uh, means all the five, all these five. Odungum uh, in this context means are included in Udul Ennum Solil, in the term uh, body. So whenever Bhagavan is referring to body, I, I mean, except when we refer to a dead body, we're generally referring to a living body. And that living body is, is functioning only when it seems to be awake. So all these five are functioning with, within, I mean, the, the, within this body, the other four sheaths are all functioning. Um, uh, so this is, that's the significance of the first half of the verse. He's pointing out that whenever we experience ourselves as a body, we experience ourselves as all these five sheaths. And then in the, um, in the next sentence, um, or the next two sentences rather, he points out a, another very significant thing. This connects back to what he said in the previous verse, but I'll talk. I'll talk about that connection in a while. Udul andri ulohumundo. That means, except the, uh, or besides the body, is there a world? 
And then he asks another, that's a rhetorical question, obviously. The implication is, um, no, there's no world besides the body. That is, without experiencing ourselves as a body, we never experience us a world. Whenever we rise as ego, we experience ourselves as a body, and consequently, we experience a world. And then he asks a slightly different uh, rhetorical question in the next sentence. He says, Udlvitu, uh, uh, that means um literally means leaving the body it it can it, but bitu is often used in the sense bitu which means leaving is often used in the sense of without so we can take it as without or we can take it more literally as leaving we without the body or leaving the body uh those who have seen the world, Ularo, are there those who have seen the world? Has any, in other words, has anyone seen the world uh, uh, without the body? No, it's only through the, the five senses of the body that we perceive the world. And world here, the primary meaning of world in this context is the external world, the world of physical objects. But the world can also be taken to include the internal world of mental objects. Neither this external world or internal world uh, exists independent of, uh, I mean, without, with, except when we uh, uh, experience ourselves as I am this body. Um, so these two sentences, superficially, they seem to be saying much the same thing. It seems to be just slightly different wording. The first one is, uh, without the body, uh, is, there, is there a world? And the second one is, without the body, uh, is there anyone who has seen the world? But the reason Bhagavan asks these is he's, he's, he's covering two aspects. In the first one, he's talking about the sat aspect, the existence aspect. Uh, that is, he, he, uh, without a body, does the world exist? And in the second one, he's talking about the chit aspect. Um, uh, is there anyone who has seen the world without a body? Um, uh, so what, one is de dealing with the being, the other is dealing with the knowing. Um, or to put it in more, more philosophical words, the, the, the first rhetorical question has an ontological uh, implication, whereas the second has an epistemological um uh, uh, implication. Bhagavan is pointing out that these two coincide. That is, um, it, that is, there's an important inference we can draw from this. For example, um, everyone will admit that in sleep we are not aware of the world or, or, or of the body. But most of us assume that though we're not aware of the, of the world, it still exists. Whereas here, in these two sentences, uh, what Bhagavan is implying is that the existence of the world and the knowledge of the world are one and the same. In other words, but, but what Bhagavan is teaching us in Uludunapadu is what is called drishti shrishti vada. Drishti shrishti, drishti means um, uh, seeing, literally it means seeing, it implies perceiving. Uh, that that it, it it though the literal meaning is seeing it implies perceiving by any of the five senses, um, and dri, uh, that's drishti. Shrishti means uh, creation, uh, and vada means uh, contention. So drishti shrishti vada is the contention that um, 
seeing precedes creation. In other words, there is no creation independent of seeing. The world seems to exist. Why? Because we see it. As, as um, he doesn't say directly, but the opening words of the first verse are "Namulahum kandalal," because we see the world. So, why do we think a world exists? Because we see it. So, um, but we assume that it exists even when we don't see it, because we so because we are taking its existence to be something independent of our perception of it. Whereas, according to Bhagavan, the existence is not independent. There's no such thing as existence independent of awareness. So the world seems to exist only because we're aware of it. The world is not aware of itself. It, as he says in the seventh verse, though the world and awareness, in that context, awareness means the mind or ego, the awareness that knows the world, though the, the world and awareness rise and subside simultaneously, it is by the uh, awareness alone that the, mind, that the world shines. As I say, awareness in this context, because he's talking about the awareness that rises and subsides. Which awareness rise, arises and subsides? Only ego. The, the pure awareness, the real awareness, is, is nature is just being. It never rises or subsides. It just remains as it is. As he says later in verse 25, Satchituli uh, Udiyadu. That is, the being awareness or the real awareness does not rise. So the awareness that rises is only the mind or ego. And it's only that awareness that knows the world. So the world shines by the mind. That means it has no existence independent of the mind. So that is what he's indirectly uh, implying here. Um, because people often think, oh, just because you, do, just because you don't see the world in, um, when you're asleep, doesn't mean the world doesn't exist. Um, it still exists there. You just because you're asleep, you don't see it. But why don't we see it in sleep? We're, people say, oh, because in, obviously you're unconscious in sleep. You're not aware of anything. Yes, it's true. In sleep, we are not aware of anything, but we are still aware. We we are aware. I am even in spite of the absence of all awareness of all other things. So since we are aware. If a world actually exists in sleep, we should know it. But since we don't know it, that means it doesn't actually exist. That is Bhagavan's, um, what, what Bhagavan has taught us. So that's a very deep uh, teaching that Bhagavan has given us. And he's alluding to that here by covering both bases. In the first sentence, he deals with the existence of the world. Does the world exist uh uh, without the body? No, the implication, that is, it's a rhetorical question. Obviously, the implied meaning is the world doesn't exist apart from the body. Not only does it not exist apart from the body, it is not, it, 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 no one, without the body, we are not aware of it. So, it, it, the world doesn't actually exist, as Bhagavan said, it merely seems to exist. What actually exists must always exist. It's something... Bhagavan often used to say, if something seems to exist at one time and not at another time, it does not actually exist even when it seems to exist. It's a mere semi-existent. That which actually exists must always exist. If something comes into existence and goes out, goes out of existence, it is not intrinsically existent. That is, it's borrowing its existence from something else. Just like if um, 
in this sense, we can take existence as being analogous to a property, although, of course, existence is not a property because existence is the, is the base, but we can take it in a sense to be analogous to a property. So if we can compare existence to heat, for example, some things are intrinsically hot, some things are not intrinsically hot, though they may be hot for a short uh, period of time. For example, if you if you have a, a a bowl of hot rice, is that rice intrinsically hot? No, it's not, because generally when we find rice, it, it it's cool. And if we leave it uh, without eating it, it will cool down. So rice is not intrinsically hot. So where does rice get its heat from? It borrows its heat from the boiling water, the water in which it was boiled. So uh, it, it, it's borrowed its heat from the water. And is the water intrinsically hot? No, it's borrowed its heat from the pan. And is the pan intrinsically hot? No, it's borrowed its heat from the fire. Is the fire intrinsically hot? Yes, because whenever there's fire, it's always hot. There's no such thing as a cold fire. Where, where there are such things as cold pots and um, uh, cold water and cold rice. So these things are not intrinsically hot. So they borrow their heat from something that is intrinsically hot. So all the things that seem to exist borrow their semi-existence from what actually exists. Or to put it more, as Bhagavan clarified uh, more, uh, he went into this more deeply, he said, Every, all objects or phenomena, all the shares, in other words, this whole world, the body and the entire world, they borrow their semi-existence from ego. How is that? Because they seem to exist only in the view of ego. So without ego, they don't exist. So they borrow their semi-existence from ego. In other words, objects borrow their semi-existence from the subject. So from where, but the subject also, like the objects, the subject appears and disappears. Ego appears in waking and dream, it disappears in sleep. So it is, it is not, it doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist. So since ego is just a semi-existent, from where does it borrow its, its semi-existent? It borrows its existence from the real existence of ourself, from that which actually exists. As Bhagavan says in the seventh paragraph of Nana, Yatatamai Ulladu Apmasarupa Mantra, what actually exists is only the real nature of oneself, Apmasarupa. So it, we, as we actually are, that is our real nature, alone is what actually exists. So this ego borrows its semi existence from the real existence of ourself. So how does it borrow its semi-existence? Because ego, as Bhagavan often explained, ego is the adjunct-conflated awareness, I am this body. This adjunct-conflated awareness depends for its semi-existence upon the pure awareness, I am. So I am is Abhmasarupa. I am is what we actually are. Uh, it is our real nature. Uh, so that alone is what actually exists. But ego, the spurious um, uh, awareness, I am this body, the awareness that, that is the 
two defining characteristics of ego is firstly, as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body. And consequently, we're aware of other things. Um, because as Bhagavan said in the previous verse, verse four, Uruvam Tanayin Uluru Paramatran. If oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. So it's only when we rise as ego, taking ourselves to be a form, but the world appears. So um the so ego is the adjunct mixed awareness, I am this body. In this adjunct mixed awareness, what is real is only I am. Uh, the, the adjuncts, but namely the body, is is an unreal superimposition. It's an unreal addition. So, since ego is this adjunct conflated awareness, it derives its semi existence from the real awareness I am. So, uh, all objects derive their semi existence from the subject, namely ego, and ego. Uh, namely, the, the false awareness I am this body derives its semi existence from the uh, actual existence, uh, from what actually exists, namely the fundamental awareness I am. Um, so uh, the, the world has no existence apart from ego who perceives it. So without the, without, and the ego always takes itself to be a body. So in this context, Bhagavan says, uh, without the body, does the world exist? And then in the next sentence, he says, without the body, has there, is there anyone who's seen the world? If people say, oh, no, no, the world exists even when the body isn't there. But this world existed before I was born. It's going to exist after I die. So how can how can you say that the world doesn't exist apart from the body? Bhagavan comes back with us very simply pointing out: without a body, has anyone ever seen a world? So we why do we believe the world exists? Because we see it. If we don't see it, why should we, why should we believe it exists when we don't see it? So Bhagavan is very simple and very logical, but he the, the conclusions he draws are very, very radical. Of course, Bhagavan is not drawing these conclusions by reasoning. He gives us, he points out things that we can arrive at by reasoning, but he what Bhagavan, Bhagavan is speaking from the certainty of his own experience. So it's with uh, that that is that's where the, the power of Bhagavan's words lie. The, the words he says are very, very simple. He, un, unlike philosophers who give detailed arguments, Bhagavan simply points things out. He lets us work it out. He lets us think about it and and arrive at uh, do our own manana to think about it and see what is the logical reason behind his for him saying this. Um, but of course, he's saying it not just for log not but just uh, he's not arrived at this conclusion as a result of logical reasoning. He's arrived. He, he this conclusion he arrived at from his own experience. But for us, he presented in a way, in such a way, but we can reason about it and come to the same conclusion. Having come to this conclusion that the world doesn't exist apart from the body, and in the next verse he said the world doesn't exist apart from the mind. Since there's no point in investigating the world when it's something that depends entirely for its seeming existence upon the mind. If we want to know the, 
but reality, the ultimate reality, we can't find it outside in the world. We can find it only within ourselves because the world borrows its seeming reality from the seeming reality of ourself as ego. And ego borrows its seeming reality from the, real, uh, from the actual reality, the true reality of ourself as we actually are, namely as I am, the pure awareness I am, which is Atmasarupa. Uh, so, to, in order to find out the truth of the world, we need to uh, turn our attention back towards ourselves. That's why Bhagavan is leading us from the, that, that is always the, the teachings go from the grosser to the subtler, from the more outward to the more inward. Because the, uh, the truth we are seeking is, is what is most inward and what is most subtle. So, we can see with the the five sheaves, it, they, five sheaves are always enumerated from the gross to the subtle, um, because that is the direction in which our journey is going. That is, if we are, if we are scientists or, in, uh, or engaged in any sort of worldly endeavor, our attention is going outwards. But when we take to the spiritual endeavor, we are trying to divert our outward going attention back within. So we are we are trying to, our, our aim is to travel from the grosser to the subtler. Always the grosser is more outward, the subtler is more inward. So we are going from, from out to in, from gross to subtle. Um, so in, in these verses, um, the, the, the main teachings really begin from verse 4, the previous verse, in which he first pointed out that the the world doesn't exist. The world, what we call the world, is just this multitude of forms. Um, this world of form does not exist independent of, uh, of, of ourselves who take ourselves to be a form. Only when we experience ourselves as a form does the world seem to be a form. If we don't experience our, ourselves as a form, who can see the form of the world and how, as he, as he asked in that verse. So uh, he's, he's starting off with the world, but he's pointing it back towards us. That, that is the, the world as the world, as a multitude of names and forms, depends upon the false awareness that is aware of itself as I am a form of this body. So that's what he's pointing out in verse 4. Then he, he verse 5, he comes a little bit more inward. He's, he's, he talks less about the world and more about the form that we take to be ourselves, pointing out that it's a form of five sheaves. And without this body consisting of five sheaves, is there a world? And then in the next verse, verse 6, he goes still further inwards, because in verse 6 he says, um, uh, the world is a form of five sense impressions, nothing else. These five sense impressions are impressions to the five sense organs. Since the mind alone perceives the world by way of the five sense organs, is there a world besides the mind? So he's going from grosser to subtler. There he said, is there a world besides the body? Here he's saying, is there a world besides the mind? And then in the next verse, verse 7, as I say, he said that though the mind and the world rise and subside simultaneously, it is by the mind alone that the world shines. That's the implication. And, but, but he also, in verse 7, he then brings us to what 
What is this po- what is this poem all about? It is Ulladu Napadu. Ulladu means what exists. So in verse seven, he comes he comes back, he, he leads us back to what actually exists. Because in verse seven, he's after saying the world shines only by the mind, he says in the, in the final sentence, the um uh, um <coughs> that uh, wait a second. Only that which shines without appearing and disappearing as the place or the base of a ground or a container for the appearing and disappearing of the world and awareness, awareness there meaning ego, um, is the substance. Substance here means the bastu. In Tamil, the word is poral. It's the equivalent of the word bastu in Sanskrit. The substance, which is the whole. Uh, Purnam means, uh, uh, sorry, Pundram in Tamil means is a it's a Tamil form of the Sanskrit word Purna, which means the the infinite whole. Um, so th- that is the one substance, but uh, so that is the base, the ground, on, uh, from which, in which, by which, to to, uh, to which, not quite to which, but anyway, uh, the world um, and ego appear. So um, that is the reality we're we're aiming towards. So we're going from grosser, uh, the external world, back to through the body, through the body to the mind, through the mind back to the source, namely uh, the pure awareness I am, which is what he refers to here as the poral, the substance, because that alone is the ultimate reality of all things. So the the the. All, all true Padesha should be leading us from uh, from the more outward and grosser to the more inward and uh, subtler. So that's what Bhagavan is doing here. Um, <clears throat> um, and then he, the final word of this verse is uh, uh, Kararu, which means um, uh, say. That, that it it's, it has no um it, it often Bhagavan will end words verses with words like say or no or investigate or see um uh, it's a, it's a, it's a style in Tamil poetry um but he he the, the significance of this final word say is how can we say this unless we consider the matter carefully? He doesn't mean just repeat this like a parrot. He means consider this carefully and then uh, and then say say for your I mean no you should think about it. If you think about it, then you should be able to say, yes, of course, no, the body doesn't the world doesn't exist without a body. The world doesn't um isn't seen without a body. Um, in connection with this last word, as I say, may you, uh, well, in the Vemba he says say, in the Kali Vemba version, version he says karuvai, which implies may you say. Um, but in the, the Kali Vemba version, before the, um, before the, um, the first word, he added one other word 
which is actually the last word of the previous line, because when he linked all the verses together, at the end of each verse, he added some more words, some some of which were connected with the previous verse, some of which would be connected with the next verse. So the word that connects with this verse, he begins by saying enil. Enil means if one considers. So what he implies by saying if one considers and by concluding by saying say is he's not he's not asking us just to to learn these things like a parrot he's asking us to consider the matter carefully to understand for ourselves why is this body a form composed of five sheaves why why shouldn't we just say the physical body is the the, the, the body and say the other things are different because all these five they are mutually dependent. No one of them exists without the other four. And why does he say that the world, why does he ask, does the world exist apart from a body? Because he wants us to, he, we, we, he, that is, he says this, but he wants us to think about it. He wants us to consider it carefully. That's why he added this word, if one considered. Um, and the same is the, uh, when he says, say, he means think about it and and tell me yourself. Does the world is there a world apart from the body? Does, does any world exist independent of the body? Has anyone ever seen any world apart from a body? No. You think about it and say for yourself is the implication. So Bhagavan expects us to not just to read these verses superficially. We need to think carefully about them and understand the reason. We we are not just to blindly believe what Bhagavan says. Oh, because Bhagavan says so, it must be true. No, he wants us to consider it carefully and understand for ourselves. Because then it only it will be a firm conviction. But the, the, the conviction will become stronger and stronger to the extent to which we put into practice what he's teaching us in Uludunapdu, namely the need for us to turn within to investigate who am I? Some of these verses, like this one, he's not directly saying that, but they're all leading up to that point. Since the, since the world doesn't exist apart from a body, and the body doesn't exist apart from the mind, and the mind doesn't exist apart from ourselves, who, who, who now take this, um, this, uh, this body and mind to be ourselves, we, we, but what is required is that we need to investigate ourselves. And only to the extent to which we investigate ourselves uh, will we um, will will we uh, will we have a clear and deep understanding. That is, we can be studying Uludu, works like Uludunapadu for many many years and still be seeing fresh uh, fresh depth of meaning in the verses. Uh, and but that is, these verses reveal their inner meaning, their, their their deeper meaning, to the extent to which we put his teachings into practice. Because when we are turning our attention within, we are turning our attention back to towards the original light, the light that illumines the mind, enabling the mind to know the world. In other words, the original awareness, the pure awareness I am. Uh, that is the, the light that illumines all other lights. So um, <clears throat> since we are turning our mind back towards the original light, we are thereby uh, 
so to speak, bathing in light. So we are getting purified and clarified. So these verses will become, the, the deep inner meaning of these verses becomes clearer and clearer to us to the extent to which we, we look deep within ourselves. Um, there's one other thing that I wanted to say earlier, but then I forgot. That is about the five sheaves. But as, as I said, the subtlest of the five sheaves is, um, is uh, called the Anandamaya Kosha. Generally, the explanation to why it's called the Anandamaya Kosha is that the usual explanation that is given in books and by the commentators is that uh, the Anandamaya Kosha alone remains in sleep. Um, so because sleep is a happy state, it's said to be a sheep composing of happiness. That explanation may be a satisfactory explanation for some people, for those who don't go so deep into this subject. But for someone who is following Bhagavan's path, that explanation is not satisfactory for several reasons. The immediate reason is, as Bhagavan implies in this verse, the body is a form composed of five sheaves, therefore all five are included in the term body. The implication here is, but whenever we experience ourselves as I am this body, we experience all these five. But do we ever experience any one of these sheaves without experiencing the others? No. So um, to say that the intellect, but, but, sorry, but the Anandamaya Kosha, one of these five sheaves alone remains in sleep, is not satisfactory for that reason. But an, another more deeper reason why it's not satisfactory, as Bhagavan says, for example, in verse 26, um, in verse 26, what he says, he says it particularly clearly there, but it's implied in so many other uh, verses, such as um verse 9, verse 14, another place. But anyway, in verse 26, he says it particularly clearly. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. That is in Tamil, uh, 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 if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. So if everything here includes all phenomena, it must include also all the five sheaves. So since ego doesn't exist in sleep, how can the how can one of its sheaths come, uh, exist? How can, how can the Anandamaya Kosha exist in sleep? It does not. The reason it is said to exist in sleep is people want explanations for everything and they're not satisfied until they get an explanation. So since there's no mind in sleep, how is it that the mind rises again in waking or dream is a question people often ask. So to satisfy such people, it is said, no, though the mind doesn't exist as such, it exists in seed form, in the form of vasanas, which are a causal body or, car, or an andamaya kosha. Even in sleep, it remains in that seed form and it sprouts again in waking. That's a nice, simple explanation for those who want an explanation. But for those who are following Bhagavan's path, we should understand there, is, there can be no explanation for how the ego rises. Can we give any explanation for how ego originally rose? No, we cannot, because 
ego is the first cause, the cause of all other causes. So how if, if there was any cause antecedent to ego, in other words, any cause prior to ego, ego wouldn't be, the, there'd be something that exists independent of ego, which contradicts Bhagavan's teaching, but ego is the, is, the, is the cause for the appearance of everything else. Without ego, nothing else exists. Uh, as, he's, um, uh, as he says, with, with, um, the, uh, of all the thoughts that rise in the mind, and thought here means, the, but what Bhagavan means by thought, all phenomena are thoughts, so that includes the whole world is nothing but thoughts. So of all the thoughts that arise in the mind, the thought called I alone is the first. The thought called I means ego. Uh, only after this rises do other thoughts rise. This is what he says in the fifth paragraph of Nana. So according to Bhagavan, the first cause, the cause of all other causes, in fact, the cause for the whole, uh, for all causality is ego. So there's no cause for the rising of ego. So since there's no cause for the original rising of ego, there's no cause for uh, we we need it. It's futile to look to, for a cause why ego comes out of sleep. But the only thing we can say, the only reasonable explanation we can give, is because ego wasn't destroyed, it keeps on coming back again and again. But even that is not an it is not a, uh, uh, an explanation that will satisfy every intellect. People who want to go on cross-questioning, looking for loopholes, they can argue against that. But ultimately, the reason why ego has no cause is that if we investigate ego, we find that there's no such thing at all. So how can there be a cause for something which doesn't actually exist? It merely seems to exist. And so, and it is the cause for all everything else that seems to exist, because everything else that seems to exist, exists in whose view? To whom does it all exist? To me, that is to ego. So um, it's unnecessary, according to Bhagavan, to, to, to postulate that uh, in sleep the vasanas remain. Uh, <clears throat> another reason why this, is, this explanation that the vasanas remain in sleep, why this is not satisfactory, vasanas we all know, uh, uh, present in waking and dream. If the vasanas are also present in sleep, what evidence do we have that we are anything other than vasanas? That is the whole point of the um, avastatraya aivu or avastatraya prakriya, the, the, the analysis of these three states. What are we to infer when we analyze the three states? We are to infer but what exists in all the three states is only the fundamental awareness I am. Other things exist only in waking and dream. But whether other things exist as in waking and dream or don't exist as in sleep, I am always exists. So I am alone is real. But if we say, oh, no, 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 Vavasanas also exist in sleep, then maybe I'm Vavasanas. We, we, that is, sometimes when you explain one thing, you undermine some other explanation. So but we can find so many um, unsatisfactory explanations are given in older texts. Bhagavan simplified everything. He says, in sleep, what exists is only pure awareness, nothing else. Uh, why does ego rise from sleep, if we ask him? 
see whether it's risen. If you look at the ego, you'll find it never, there's no such thing. It never had, it never actually rose at all. So Bhagavan's teachings go are far deeper and more subtle. That is the, the ultimate conclusions Bhagavan comes to are the same as the ultimate conclusions of the older texts. But Bhagavan reaches there in a much simpler way without creating confusion in the way. If we say that Babasanas exist in sleep, we are unnecessarily confusing the matter. Are we aware of, does anyone experience any Vasanas in sleep? No. Since we don't experience them, why should we assume they exist? The Vasanas are whose Vasanas? They're only ego's Vasanas. So in the absence of ego, how can its Vasanas remain? If we think about it a little, it's an absurd idea. But that's not to say the older texts are wrong to give that explanation. They give that explanation to those who are looking for such explanations, to those who are satisfied with such explanations. But once we come to Bhagavan's path, we need to think more deeply about this. And then we will find some of the explanations that we were given earlier. But earlier, it may have been a satisfactory explanation for us. When we view it now through the clear lens of Bhagavan's teachings, these explanations are not satisfactory. Um, it doesn't, as I say, that doesn't mean it, these are, it, it is wrong to give this explanation because some people will be satisfied only with such explanations. But if we want to go deeper in this subject, we need to understand these explanations are not satisfactory. So then from the point of, from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, um, to say that uh, the Ananda Maya Kosha is called the Ananda Maya Kosha because it uh, is the only Kosha that remains in sleep is not a satisfactory explanation. So why is it called Ananda Maya Kosha? Because what is the Ananda Maya Kosha? It is the will, it cons- which consists of vasanas. And what are vasanas? What do all vasanas have in common? They are all inclinations to seek happiness. Whether we are seeking happiness in material things or in um, or, or in uh, intellectual things or in spiritual things, wherever we may be seeking happiness, uh, that, that is all inclinations, all desires, all likes, all dislikes. It's all ultimately they're all a, a quest for happiness. That is the one thing that we are all seeking, as Bhagavan. Uh, makes clear in the very first clause of the first sentence of uh, of um of, of uh, nana because sakala jiva galum um how did he say it sakala jiva galum uh dindri epodum sukumai irika virumba vadalam have i got that right sakala sakala jiva galum dindri epodum sukumai irika virumbadalam yes i remember it correctly um so since all jivas like to be ha- happy always without what is called misery so we are all seeking happiness every effort we make whatever whether our effort is to um is a morally right effort or a morally wrong effort, whether it's an outwardly directed effort or an inwardly directed effort, whatever type of effort it may be, all all efforts are driven by our desire for happiness. So all vasanas are just inclinations. If we have a, a, 
a, a, a particular vishaya vasana, that means we have an inclination to seek happiness in that particular vishaya. If I think that if I have lots of money, I'll be happy, I will have an inclination to try and accumulate more and more and more and more money, thinking it's going to make me more and more happy. Of course, I'm going to be disappointed because even the, the, the richest people in the world, there are now centibillionaires, people who have more than $100 billion or whatever. Are they happy? No, of course they're not. They, their, their desires are raging more and more and more. So we cannot find, uh, we cannot, what it, we, there's no happiness to be found in any Vishaya whatsoever. Even if our Vishaya, the Vishaya in which we uh, seek happiness is something more subtle than uh, something like money. Supposing we, we, uh, we enjoy intellectual pleasures. We, we enjoy philosophy or some other ma um, advanced mathematics or some science or something. But more intellectual pleasures, even these play. These are there's no happiness in any of these things. Happiness is our own real nature. It does not lie outside ourselves. So all vasanas are all desires are desires for what? They're desires for happiness. We're all seeking happiness. Um, so, um, the, um, because uh, yes, Bhagavan also says that in this uh, in this same first sentence, in the second clause he says, "Yavakum tan idhitele parama piriyam irapadalam." Since for everyone, the greatest love is only for oneself. But then the, the third clause is a very important one. Priya taku sukhame karanam Since happiness alone is the cause for love. In other words, why do we have any desire? Why do we have any like or dislike, desire, aversion, hope, fear, or anything? Those things which we think will make us happy, we desire those things. Those things that we think will... Uh, did, uh, be detrimental to our happiness, we dislike those things. So the will is directed entirely towards happiness. So because the will is directed towards happiness, the, it is called the, uh, uh, um, the Ananda Maya Koja, the sheath consisting of happiness. More precisely, it's the sheath consisting of the, the liking for happiness, the desire for happiness. Um, so I think that's all the explanation I need to give for now. So are there any questions? Thank you, Michael. Um, so why is, uh, on the five sheets, why is Ananda Maya Kosha called Ananda? Where is this Ananda coming from? That's what I was saying. Ananda means happiness. And the, the Ananda Maya Kosha is what is otherwise called the chittam, the will. It consists of bhasana. that, 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 those vishayas is going to cause happiness. It's sort of a yes, mistake. Yes. Why, why, why do we have an inclination to, to um, learn more and more or to gather more and more money or to be a better, better uh, sportsman or artist? or what, what, People are seeking happiness in so many different ways. Because why, wherever we, whatever we, whatever efforts we make, whether in arts or science or uh, sports or um, or reading or watching television or 
driving fast cars or accumulating more and more money, wherever we are seeking our happiness, wherever we are making effort, we are making effort for one thing and one thing alone, because we believe that what we are making effort for will make us happy. If I have a little bit more money, then I'll be happy. Or if I have a bit more learning, then I'll be happy. Or if I get a promotion in my job, then I'll be happy. So we, we are constantly going outwards, thinking that things other than ourselves will make us happy. We are overlooking the fact that the happiness we are seeking, we ourselves are that. Patramasi, you are that. We, we are the happiness that we are seeking. So, so long as we are seeking it outside, we're going to be disappointed. If we want to be, if we want to enjoy the happiness that we're all seeking, we can find it only within ourselves. That is why Bhagavan concludes that first paragraph of Nana by saying um, that, that first sentence, he says, Manamatra nidreo dinum anubhavikum tansubhava mana achukate adeya. In order to attain that happiness, uh, which is one's own real nature, one's own swabhava, and which which one experiences daily in sleep, which is devoid of mind, tanne tan aridovendam, oneself, knowing oneself, is necessary. So how are we to know ourself? Adaku nana innam jnana vicharame mukhya sadnam. For that, the, in, the awareness investigation, jnana vichara, uh, who am I? Alone is the principal means. Thank you, Mike. So, on this um, five sheets, you know, practically speaking, how does this concept of five sheets, how can this concept of five sheets be used in our spiritual practice? We we just need to recognize that when we talk about body, we're talking about all these five. When Bhagavan says that the, the, the ego is the, that which is a, wrongly aware of itself as I am this body, in other words, it's the false awareness I am this body, what he means by body is not just this gross body, because whenever we experience this gross body as ourself, we also experience, we experience the whole bundle as ourself. This bundle comes together. Um, that That's one thing. That is... To, Put this into practice. We have to have a clear understanding. All these five sheaves also, Bhagavan says, the body, the insentient body does not say I, he says in verse 24 of Uludhanapalu. And in um, Upadesha Undia, in verse 22, I think, yes, verse 22, he says, um, he enumerates the five sheaves and he says, um, since they are jada and asat, jada means they're not aware, asat means they don't actually exist, they are not I who is sat, implying I who is sat and chit. So we, in order to, the practical implication of this, when we are going within, what we are to investigate is not the five sheaves. What we are to investigate is the I that is now conflated with these five sheaves. So we're investigating only the eye. So the first thing we need to do is to distinguish ourselves from all these five sheaves. If, if I don't distinguish myself from the five sheaves, 
if I take myself to be this gross body and I'm told to attend to myself, I can go and sit in front of a mirror all day long, thinking I'm attending to myself. I'm following Bhagavan's teaching. Bhagavan said, attend to yourself, so I'm attending to myself. We can think. Or if we think the life is ourself, we can be attending to the, watching the breath or doing pranayama or some such thing. Or if we think the mind is ourself, we can be watch, watching the thoughts, uh, witnessing the thoughts of people say. Or we can be... Um, or if we take the intellect to be ourself, we can be we can be attending to the intellect. Or we, if we take the will to be ourself, we can be attending to a vastness. None of these are ourselves. We are that we. To whom all these things appear? That's why Bowman often asked this question: To whom? So that's turning. He asked that question in order to turn our attention back towards ourselves, away from the objects towards the subject. All these five sheaves, they're all objects. They're all things known by us. So we are not any object. We have a subject. So it has a, it has a very deep practical significance. When Bhagavan says we need to attend to ourselves, what we need to attend to is only that basic awareness I am. Even when he says um, uh, investigate ego, what does he mean? Does he mean investigate? What is ego? Ego is this adjunct-completed awareness. I am this body, the chit jada granti. The chit portion is I am. The jada portion is the, the five sheaves. So what are we to investigate? Are we to investigate the chit portion or the jada portion? Obviously, only the chit portion. So we need to be able to dis we need to have a clear understanding that we are something distinct from all these five sheaves. Then only we can go deep within. Right. This is the Vibhaka. This is distinguishing, this is the Dhritrisya Vibhaka, distinguishing the seer from the seen. Distinguishing the 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 deha from the the, the dehi from the deha. Deha is the is the body consisting of these five she's. The dehi. One who has the body is ego. That is what we're to investigate. And um, Krishna says in Gita, the, the, the kshetra and the kshetragnya. The kshetra means, the, the field means the body, consisting of all these five sheaths. The kshetragnya is, the, in the light of Bhagavan teaching, we understand the kshetragnya is ego. But Krishna was actually referring to Shetra Agnya as the ultimate reality. Because when we investigate ego, what are we to investigate? We're only to investigate not the Jada portion, only the Chit portion. That Chit portion of ego, that is the, what Krishna refers to as the Shetra Agnya. So all this discrimination is necessary. Why all these prakriyas are given in the text? Why they analyze the the three states of waking, dream, and sleep, why they distinguish uh, seer from the scene, the drikdrisya vivaka, why they uh, analyze the five sheaths. It's all in order to help us distinguish ourselves from all these things. Why do they refer to ourselves as the witness? Because we are not anything that is known. We are not anything that is witnessed. We are that which knows it all. So we are the witness. So when it is said you are the witness, People think, oh, if I sit witnessing thoughts, then I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, practicing meditation. No, what we need to, why we are told that we are the witness is in order to distinguish ourselves. 
We have merely the knower, not anything that is known. So in order to know ourselves, we need to know the knower. We need to witness the witness. So all these teachings, the practical implication of all these teachings is to turn our attention back towards ourselves. But many people have studied all these old texts, and they can give long, long lectures on these texts. But what they fail to grasp is what is the practical implication. The, the sole purpose of the avatar of Bhagavan was to come and to point out to us very clearly and very simply what is the practical implication of the whole of Vedanta. The practical implication is you yourself are that, so what is the practical implication? Forget about that. Investigate yourself. If that is nothing other than you, then you don't have to think of that as if it's a that. It is you. So who am I? As the Advoma makes clear in verse 32 of Uludhunaptu, when the Vedas say, Aduni, you are that, what should be our response? We should investigate what am I, and thereby we should know and be what we actually are. So when when we when we study any Vedantic text, particularly Bhagavan's teaching, we should always be thinking, what is the practical implication of this? Why are we being taught this? Bhagavan didn't come to teach us a nice philosophy. Advaita was never intended to be a nice philosophy for people to give lectures for hours and hours and years and years. Advaita is, is, a, is a practical philosophy for turning our attention back towards ourselves. If there is one only without a second, and if we are that, what should we attend to? We should attend to ourselves, the one who is without a second. If we are attending to other things, we're attending to the, the, sec the second, which doesn't actually exist. It's just a, 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 it's a vivata, it's just an appearance. It has no existence at all. So this is the purpose of the whole of Bhagavan's teaching. And if we understand Bhagavan's teaching, we will see this is the purpose of all of Vedanta. But of course, those who didn't, don't understand this purpose have made Vedanta unnecessarily complicated. Thank you, Michael. Um, Sanjay Lohia, Sanjay Lohia is asking, Michael, you say Bhagavan speaks from experience. We cannot argue but his experience is only that of pure awareness. So how does he have the experience of ego, mind, this world, the law of karma, and such things? He doesn't experience these things. Please clarify. He experiences all these things, but he experiences them all as they actually are, namely as pure awareness. What Bhagavan is aware of and what we are aware of is exactly the same, because there is one only without a second. So Bhagavan is not aware of one and we are aware of some seconds. The second things that we are aware of, the other things, the Anya, is actually nothing but that one. Why it seems to be something other? Because we have risen as ego. So if we want to see the one, we need to turn our attention back towards ourselves. So because Bhagavan has seen the underlying reality of all these things, he knows he knows very well how, though in his view there's no ignorance, he knows the reality of the ignorance, and he knows the reality of that ignorance is nothing but the pure awareness I am. As he says in verse 13 of Uludunapadu, Jnana mam tane me, oneself who is awareness, 
alone is real. Nanabam jnanam ajnanamam. Awareness of multiplicity is ignorance. But even this ignorance, which is unreal, does not exist apart from the one real, apart from oneself, who is jnana. Just like the, the, all, the, all the many ornaments, do they exist apart from the gold, their substance? So Bhagavan is Sarvajna. He knows everything because he knows the only thing there is to know, the only thing that actually exists. Somewhere he said like Kanakandarpo. Oh. So he said like he's perceiving everything, even the worldly things, but through the prism of uh, lack he, of... He says in... in, in right? Yeah. He says in, um, in uh, verse um, 17 and 18, in verse 17 of Uludhana he said that he see that for him the body is I. But whereas for us the body I is limited to the body, for he for him I shines without any limit. That means he's what we see as a body is what he sees as himself. So actually that we it's very easy, we shouldn't misinterpret verses 17 and 18 because we can easily run jump to the wrong conclusion. That is what Bhagavan is actually saying in verse 17 and 18. Um, in verse 17, he says, for those who do not know themselves, and for those who have known themselves, the body is actually I. For those who do not know themselves, I is only to the extent of the body. In other words, I is limited to the body. For those who have known themselves within the body, oneself, I, shines without limit. So since he is one without a second, if at all there's a body, it cannot be anything other than him. So he, even the body is I, because there's nothing other than I. And in, then in verse 18 he says, for those who do not have knowledge and those who have, the world is real. For those who do not know, reality is to the extent of the world. That's all. The extent of the world here means all the names and forms of the world, they are real. For those who have known, reality pervades devoid of form as the support for the world. So he gives us clues here to what he's implying. He's not saying that he sees all these names and forms. He sees the reality of these names and forms. And the reality of those names and forms is, of course, real. So in that sense, for him, the world is real. Right. So my so question is very deep and subtle, subtle things Bhagavan is saying here. Easily to, very easy for people to misunderstand this. But what he's saying is very, very deep. Right. So my question was, is my, is my voice coming to you? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, my question was, sir, once... Venkatraman's ego was dissolved, he became Bhagwan, and as Bhagwan is pure awareness. Yes. So now he has lost all contact with the ego, mind, world, and everything. Now, how is he talking about all these things? Because he has lost all contact. He is the, he's the formless one. So now he is talking about forms which he is not aware of. But he's aware of the substance. So he hasn't lost contact. He is aware of the substance, but he has. He is now he has now divorced himself from the from the Maya, but he's talking about Maya, but he's not aware of Maya. He is aware of Maya. 
He's aware of the reality of Maya, which is Brahman. Is Maya something other than Brahman? Then we've got Brahman and we've got a second. We've got one and we've got our second. There is no second. There's no Maya other than Brahman. There's no world other than Brahman. Do the many ornaments exist apart from gold, he says? Is the ignorance uh, anything other than the, the, the one real awareness? Got your point, sir. But the gold is not aware of the ornaments. Gold is only aware of gold. Yes. So, so it's how, aware of the reality of the ornament. It's a how go is gold. How is how is gold talking about the ornaments? Because go gold is not aware of the ornaments. Because gold knows the reality of the ornaments. It has it's a, it's the it's the authority on ornaments. Because it knows the reality of ornaments. It knows what ornaments actually are. They're nothing but gold. I think that phrase uh, does it. It is authority but, on the ornaments. But, but, <laughs> but the problem is, we, with our little mind, we are trying to understand Bhagavan's state. See what Bhagavan says. He, he's answered your question very uh -huh. clearly in verse... Um, verse... Uh, Verse 31 hmm. of Uludhanapadu. Um, this verse, again, we have to be very careful when we understand this verse. He's referring to jnanis using an honorific plural. He's not saying, he does not mean that there are many jnanis. Um, so, uh, but it's, because it's an honorific plural, it's a bit difficult to translate into English. But basically what it means is, for those who are happiness composed of that, in other words, those who, who are tammayananda, happiness composed of that, that meaning Brahman, which rose destroying themselves, what one thing exists for doing. Then he says, Tanne aladu uh, anyam ondrum ariya. They do not know anything other than themselves. Abanileme inadu endru. Uh, who can uh, conceive their state as like this? So we are trying to use our little mind to understand Bhagavan's state. How can we do so? For him, there is nothing other than himself. If there's a world, yes, it's himself. If there's a body, yes, it's himself. If there's Agnana, yes, it's himself. Everything is himself because he alone exists. So, with our small mind, we cannot understand his state. Got it. Got it, sir. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, so, go to the next But we question. should have no doubt. But when he's, what, he knows what he's talking about, when he makes these, uh, when he teaches us, gives us these teachings, he knows what he's talking about because he's the ultimate reality of all these things. He knows everything there is to know about ego, everything there is to know about the world. What is there to know about ego? What is there to know about the world? I am. He knows I am. That is knowing everything. But there is to know about anything. Thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Um, so, Rabbi Day is asking this question. How exactly does attending to the ego shed the ignorance that we are the body? Because when we're attending to ego, we are attending to the reality of ego, not to the unreal portion of ego. The reality of ego is I am. 
why is ego now mixed and completed with adjuncts? Because as ego, we are grasping these adjuncts. Urupatri undam, urupatri nikkum, urupatri undumikongum. Grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. So the nature of ego is to be constantly grasping forms. Because, uh, we, because we are constantly grasping forms, the, the forms are not holding us. We are holding the forms. So we are not holding the, ad, the adjuncts are not holding us. We are holding the adjuncts. If instead of holding the adjuncts, if we hold ourselves, because we're no longer holding the adjuncts, the adjuncts drop off and we alone remain. The pure eye alone remains. Uh, thank you, Michael. That's one way of explaining. We can also say simply what we are attaining. If if you we can several ways we can explain it. Supposing you see a snake, sorry. Supposing you see a rope and mistake it to be a snake. How can you get rid of that snake? The only way is to look at it very carefully, because if you look at it carefully, what happens? You will see that it's just a rope. So by looking at the snake you see its underlying reality, the rope. And as soon as you see its underlying reality, you no longer, you no longer see the snake. That's the only you see way. only the rope. This is what the point Sanjay was trying to make. But, uh, but uh, Bhagavan sees only the rope. He doesn't see the snake. <laughs> but what we see as a snake is what he sees as a rope. And he also knows that others see it, see it as a snake. Yes, yes. So that's one way of explaining it. Another way of explaining it, what we are actually attending to is only our own fundamental being. So the more we attend to our being, the clearer and clearer it shines. Why did this world shine so, loom so large in our view? Uh, for, for example, there are so many problems in this world. If we re if we follow the news, we'll find that the economic situation in the world is very bad at the moment. We, so many countries are going through recessions and um, and there's so many wars and so many conflicts and so many, and there's climate change and everything. If you're if you're much concerned about these things, the more you think about it, the bigger and bigger these problems will loom to you. Truth is, of course, we, I'm not saying these are not problems, but the world has always been full of problems of one sort or another. The problems loom large because we attend to them. If we, that's why Bhagavan says we should not allow our mind to dwell much on worldly matters, because the more we dwell on worldly matters, the more all these problems will loom. We attend to ourself, what will loom large is ourself, that pure awareness I am. So the more we attend to I am, the more I am will shine brightly and other things will recede into the background until eventually I am will swallow everything and I am alone will remain. Is Thank that you. a satisfactory answer? I think so. Uh, <laughs> Um, Thank you, Michael. Yes, it is. Very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Murthy, uh, I see your hand rising. You're putting a comment in there. So do you want to go ahead, please? Yes. Uh, um, my comment was related to Sanjay's question. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Sanjay's question again arises uh, from 
the basic idea that Bhagavan is that form which is speaking of all those things. See, we are firmly established in our own form as ourselves. And hence, our question is, how is Bhagavan, who is uh, enlightened, know about all the karma uh, stuff and ego and all that? For him, it's all lost. So when you say something like, for him, all those are lost, you are pointing to an individual by that, that word him. right? So we are still stuck in the in the level of I am being this body and called Sanjay and that body is Bhagavan and Bhagavan is talking about all those things. So how do we rectify is, this problem? Is that Bhagavan? Yes, but how do is we... Is that thing? Because Bhagavan died at a, some point of time. If Bhagavan is that body which is speaking of all those things then that body vanished at a particular time in 1950. So how can that be the ever-existing sub? So that ever-existing sub is not constricted to that body. But our question is based on the assumption or implied meaning that that body, that personality, that mind, which is supposedly an enlightened being, is talking about all these ego and uh, which they shouldn't really have any idea about because they have lost it. See what he says. He has lost it when Venkatraman became Bhagavan. So the, the fundamental, the question's fundamental basis is that that person, that individual, that personality or the mind or the body, the combination which vanished in 1950 is what is Bhagavan. That is the fundamental basis on which the question is built. Yes, but so I think that is where we go erroneous every time when we ask questions yes. like that. How does he speak? How does he think? How does he plan? How yes. does he show emotions? Yes, all those we, are related questions. Yes, but we need to go even deeper than that. Why? Why is our conception of Bhagavan limited in any way? Because we are limited. Whatever <laughs> conception we have of Bhagavan, even if we say Bhagavan is Paripurna Brahman. It's still a limited, we've got a little, little in yeah. our little mind, we've got an idea of what is that big Brahman, it's something very big. So, inevitably, our conception of Bhagavan is limited. Even if we understand that he's not the body, he's not the mind, he's that which is shining in our heart as I, it's still a limited conception because the mind cannot have a, all conceptions, all thoughts are limited. So that's why I was asking you, so what is the solution to this problem? So long as we take ourselves as I am this body, we exactly. will inevitably have a limited view of Bhagavan. Exactly. In order to know Bhagavan as Bhagavan knows himself, we, all we need to do know. is to know ourselves as he knows ourselves. Exactly. Because we are nothing other than him. He is our own exactly. reality. Exactly. I think that is why it is it. Because this question which he asked is as good or as bad as questions like, how does Bhagavan speak? How does Bhagavan think? Yes. I mean, if he is supposedly a enlightened person, there should not be in speaking. That, see, the conceptions are based on our own conception about ourselves. Yes, that yes. is erroneous to start with. Yes, yes. So all these questions will be wrong. And I think the only answer like to uh, finally conclude is to who is asking the question? Yes. Uh, that will sound like rhetoric, right? I mean, if you and me are to say, Sanjay, who is asking that question? 
uh, he would think you know why don't you answer the question which i asked instead of asking me a counter question yes <laughs> it is what but, some of the devotees uh, did to bhagwan himself yes. right so but so that our is conception of bhagwan is limited and that's why all these questions arise yeah but bhagwan asking who is asking this that is actually the most practical answer but people just aren't willing to accept that exactly thank you more yeah thank you thank you mostly um so um bruce makes a comment here the perception of other things or other jeevas is only a misperception of what seems to be or what actually is yes it's because of our limited perception we see all this multiplicity so the problem lies not in this multiplicity there's no problem in the world at all the problem lies in us that is the ultimate import of bhagavan's teaching the problem lies in us and the solution lies in us the problem is our self ignorance the false awareness i am this body the solution is the pure awareness i am um michael would you say then uh, excessive and clinging reverence and love towards a form called bhagwan as one's own guru can also be a stumbling block in dropping that idea that bhagwan is not that form which taught all these things including ulagnatha and all that because i feel the ulaganarthadu is as unreal as bhagwan's form and mind uh, which we call bhagwan right yes none of these existed when i went to sleep yeah and what exists in sleep is the reality yeah so neither bhagwan has that form nor his teachings existed in sleep so yeah. clinging with a lot of reverence and uh, talking about bhagwan as the enlightened soul also could become uh, a very subtle stumbling block to get over this constriction if if uludu napdu is true uludu napdu is unreal if uludu napdu is real then uludu napdu is untrue untrue because exactly. uludu napdu tells us everything is unreal yes absolutely that is why the function of guru is to always turn us back within that is why when janaki mata fell at bhagavan's feet placing her forehead on his his feet and holding his ankles he looked down at her and he asked her what are you doing she said i'm holding on to the feet of my guru he said this body is perishable these feet are perishable if you take these feet to be the feet of your guru you will be disappointed but real feet of your guru is that which is shining in your heart as i hold on to those feet they alone will save you so the the whole purpose of the outward form of guru is to turn us back within so what is the purpose of ulujnapti to turn our attention within so it it's good to study ulujnapti it's good to think about ulujnapti but we shouldn't just stop with the shravana manana the nidityasan is all important but the shravana manana are of limited value if there's no nidityasana so the, the whole purpose of text like ulujnapti is to turn our attention back within that is what we need to that's that should be our focus thank you thank but you, one more thing i would say we shouldn't underestimate the power of bhagavan's 
uh, Nama Rupa, his name and form. Just like Bhagavan said about Aranachala, how Bhagavan described in verse 10 of Aranachala Patikam, how Aranachala, if you think of it even once, how it works within the mind, uh, subduing all the cheste and uh, turning the mind, making the mind tanadu abhimukham, to face towards itself, and then making it motionless like itself, finally it will feed upon it. So we shouldn't underestimate the power of thinking of, 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 of Bhagavan's name and form. If we meditate with love on his name and form, if we meditate with love on his teachings, they have a tremendous power to kindle in our heart the love to turn within, to surrender ourselves wholly to him. And there is a question from Shohan. Um, wanting to know the tr about the truthiness of events and activities. Basically, what he means is are all verbs false? Does God not act? There's one true verb the verb am. That's the only true word. Yes. Exists. You can also say no is true, provided you're talking about knowing am. I know I, I am is a true statement. I know I am is a true statement. All other statements are ultimately false. Right. Um, thank you. Um, so there's a question um, from Ram. Um, who created ego? Why also? Why does anxiety come? <laughs> this is a this is a very a very tricky question. Who created ego? Because Bhagavan said, but people often ask Bhagavan, how did this ego come into existence? Why did this ego come into existence? Bhagavan used to say. How or why are, in, are invalid questions. What we need to investigate is who or what is this ego. But whoever is asking this question, is it Shohan, you've asked the question in a very tricky way. Because you, you've asked the, the how or, or why question. Without using how or why, you've used who instead. You said who has created this ego. <laughs> the truth is, First, find out what is ego. If you investigate ego, you will find there's no such thing. Since there's no such thing as ego, there's no one who has created it. The creation of ego is false because ego is false. Thank you, Michael. So we constantly have to turn whatever, whatever question may arise in our mind, just like Bhagavan Bhagavan was teaching us by example. When we ask questions to Bhagavan, he asks who is asking the question. He is showing us how we should respond to the questions that rise in our mind. Who wants to know who created ego? That is what we need to investigate. Obviously, it's ego who wants to know who created ego. But if we investigate ego, it will cease to exist. Because ego is spurious, because ego is false, mm. asking created ego is the same as asking uh, about the son of a barren woman, right? He, yeah, he yes, exactly, exactly. How was the son of a barren woman born? Yeah. Who, 
Who was the father of the son of a barren woman? Uh, that's uh, uh, twisting the question as, as Shoham very cleverly twisted this question, but it's still a false question. But in the talk no, of the uh, son so, Michael, sorry yeah. to interrupt. Uh, that was actually that. That is this is actually Ram's question. Oh, oh, okay. My question was the verb one. Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever, whoever yeah. it was, does, doesn't matter. But it's a very cleverly worded question. But we can't trick Bhagavan. Bhagavan will always, <laughs> however clever we may think we are, Bhagavan will always be more clever. He will always turn it back to ourselves. Um, you know, and so when, when we discussed the, um, the five sheets and you, you talked about the gross and the subtle, um, it's not directly related, but something that runs in my mind is like, you know, practice, you know, from a practical point of view. Um, we still use the grosser bhakti, you know, ananya bhakti to complement the practice of, uh, sorry, the grosser bhakti of anya bhakti to complement our eventual practice, which is ananya bhakti. Yeah. Right. Um, so how, for this devotee, Michael James, how did this ananya bhakti and anya bhakti come together? Your own reflections. When our mind goes outwards, when our anyatvam, otherness, comes into existence, when our attention goes outwards. So long as our attention goes outwards, it's good to be devoted to Bhagavan. It's good to be devoted to his teachings because Bhagavan and his teachings are turning our mind back within. So there's no... When Bhagavan talks in verse... Um, Verse 8 of uh, uh, Upadeshundia, he says, Anya Bhavatin Abhanahamahum and Anya Bhavamayundi Para and Maitinamutamunundi Para. That means rather than Anya Bhava, that is devotion to him as other than ourself, devotion to him as as ourself, as, as Ananya, as not other than ourself. In other words, the recognition that he is that which is shining in our heart as I, that's Abhanahamahum, that is best of all. Bhagavan isn't there saying that Anya Baba is wrong or that it's, uh, he, he's not putting it down. He's just, Anya Baba is very, very good. No, and to have devotion to God, Bhagavan will never say that is a bad thing. To have devotion to Guru, Bhagavan will never say that's a bad thing. But better than that, the true devotion to God, the true devotion to Guru is being devoted to knowing who am I. Well, so it's a, it's a matter of degree. So by because of our devotion to God, God appeared in the form of Bhagavan Ramana in order to tell us that he exists within us as I. So it is, so long as our mind goes outwards, we should worship. We should uh, cling to the feet of Bhagavan, metaphorically speaking. Our mind should constantly be dwelling on him and his teachings. Because only he and his teachings will be constantly reminding us to go back within. So the Anya Baba is a great... If, if, if the mature Anya Baba is a great aid to an Anya Baba... Great support to Ananya Baba. How did it work for you, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 
All I can say, it's, it's Bhagavan's grace. Everything is Bhagavan's grace. How is it working for any of us? Bhagavan has drawn us to him. Bhagavan has given us at least an, uh, a small mustard seed of, of love for him. And now we've been, we've, we've been caught in the tiger's jaws. How, how did this happen? We just, um, we foolishly came too close to the tiger, so he pounced on us. <laughs> right. Right. And now uh, he's chewing us, chewing and chewing on us until we become fit to be swallowed by him. And we are struggling to try and get away from him. We are saying, oh, I'm so devoted to Bhagavan, but um, Bhagavan is that which is shining in our hearts as I, our mind is going outwards. If we're really devoted to Bhagavan, our mind will only be going inwards. So even our love for Bhagavan is a, is a, a bit of a sham. <laughs> okay, we have some love for Bhagavan, but even that love he has given us. So it is entirely grace. As Bhagavan said, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. It's grace that draws us to this path. It's grace that guides us along this path. And it is grace that will finally swallow us. And that grace is what is called Bhagavan Ramana, who is always shining in our heart as I. He and his grace, Shiva and Shakti, are one and inseparable. He is, he is Aral Swarupam, Karana Swarupam. And uh, I think uh, there was a comment on grace by Anand to this effect. Um, Stephen, I don't really understand your question. Can you just go ahead and, and ask it, please? Because I don't know which comment you're referring to. Stephen Sai. Okay, hold on. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm going back to when we had the conversations about not to be in argument with those that we have conversations with and that was about faith and i really took on not to be in bar argument about one's faith be it another or my own so when i'm in argument then i'm having a tussle with ego so that's where i am with i wanted to, michael to talk about that piece again about not being in argument with those who have belief in another faith, but I took it even deeper to be not be in argument with myself. Um, not arguing with others is good because everyone believes what they want to believe. If someone, if someone, the mind is attracted to that particular, that particular religion or philosophy or atheism or whatever it feels comfortable with. That is, the, the new atheists, they feel comfortable with their atheist philosophy. Fine, if they're happy with that, that's no problem <laughs> at all. So we are, not to, we are not to argue with others, but arguing with ourselves can be, is, is beneficial. Why? If we want to understand what Bhagavan's teachings are, we are willing students so we can argue with ourselves. Arguing means not in the sense of, um, of a disputation, but in the sense of uh, the, the deeper sense of arguing, in the sense of reasoning. We need to reason with ourselves. We need to understand this is the manana. We need to think deeply about Bhagavan's teachings in order to have a, a deep understanding and a deep appreciation of them. Because only to the extent to which we understand Bhagavan's teachings, 
deeply, will we be able to put them into into practice uh, deeply? If our understanding is still relatively superficial, our practice will will be equally superficial. So since our aim is to go deeper and deeper into the practice, we need to go, our understanding needs to grow deeper and deeper. But what really makes our understanding deeper, that, that the, the, to, to get a deeper understanding, we need a greater clarity of mind. And that clarity of mind comes from the practice. But it will also be accompanied by the manana, reasoning. That is, the, the deeper the insight that we come, the deeper the extent to which our manana is going. So, so reasoning, thinking through these things, thinking why Bhagavan said this, what is the reason why Bhagavan said this? What is the practical implication of what Bhagavan said? What is the logical connection between what he said here and what he said there? Trying to get a, a, a coherent and a deep understanding, that is very necessary. Manana has its role to play. Of course, what is all important is the, is the nidityasana, the actual practice, but the manana, deep manana, can be a great aid and support to us in the practice. So Bhagavan didn't um, didn't uh, say that we shouldn't argue with ourselves in the sense that we shouldn't... It's good to reason about all these things. It's good to think deeply, to understand what are the logical connections between um, what he says here and what he says there. That's, that's good because that's how we get deeper and deeper insight but that is just an aid to the practice. That is not the practice itself. The practice itself is just turning within. Is, and, that, and a, thank, is, it, is that a satisfactory answer? Very satisfactory answer. Right. And thank you for having it recorded. So when I forget, I can come back to your response again. Right. So right. The I reason, appreciate that. The reason I'm say, repeating these things again and again and again not for the sake of others. I'm repeating them for my own sake to din it into my own uh, thick head. So we are we by thinking more and more about Bhagavan's teachings, we're all benefited. And th- and that's exactly my point. Thank you so. Uh, right, thank you, right. Bhagavan, for Michael speaking. <laughs> well, if there's anything useful in in what Michael is saying, it is coming only from Bhagavan. The instrument Bhagavan uses may be a useless instrument, but Bhagavan can use even the most useless instrument to do. Um, he used his old leaky pen to write Uludunapadu and so many other things. So the instrument is unimportant. Who is wielding the instrument is what is important. So there's no mistake in your speaking. And then behind you is Aranantula. Yeah. And that works for me. Yeah, yeah. There may be mistakes. The mistakes I take full responsibility for. But if there's anything, anything useful coming through, that is coming only from Bhagavan. And likewise, if there's anything you say that I don't hear from my own filter, I take responsibility for. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I can mistakes are also Bhagavan's. <laughs> uh, yes. If mistakes are supposed to be delivered through the instrument called Michael, it will be delivered. So why yes, should we yes, own yes. mistakes alone? <laughs> yes. Yeah, the clarification about Ananda Mayakosha, you know, being a resultant or a product of ego, that was beautiful. 
Right. These are all things that we, not everything we can find, but Bhagavan has said it. But if we think deeply about what he has said, we have to come to certain conclusions. Bhagavan expected us to do manana, expected us to not just to blindly believe all these things. Bhagavan often used to say, do not believe what you do not know. So we need to think about these things. Just because it's always been said in a particular way, is that the best way of saying it? Is it? Because we see so many things that old ways of explaining things, we, we see how they don't really sit comfortably with the deeper teachings given by Bhagavan. So then we have to understand, why was it said like that in the old text? Yes, there's a good reason why it was said like that, because some people will only be satisfied with such answers. And always the nature of the guru, the deep, we, we can see it with, with Bhagavan, the deeper the questions Bhagavan was asked, the deeper the teachings he gave. Like many people who come in, in books like talks, we can see people coming asking very, very superficial questions. They ask one question and they don't even follow it up. They immediately jump onto some other subject. They come with a list, they ask their list and they're satisfied. Whereas a really mature disciple is like Shiva Prakashan Pillai. He came with one question, which happened to be the perfect question. Swami, who am I? And from there, he, that, that, that led him to question more and more deeply. And so he got such a, such valuable, such immensely precious teachings from Bhagavan because he asked the deep questions. So the, the guru will, uh, will reveal only to the extent to which the disciple is really seeking. If the disciple is, is, Satisfied with a superficial answer, they will get only a superficial answer. But if they question more deeply, then they'll get deeper answers. Because that is reflecting what's happening within. We, our aim is to go deeper and deeper within. So to go deeper within, we need a deeper and clearer understanding. So it's, it's all... What 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 is happening outside in our interaction with Bhagavan is what is is a reflection of what is happening inside in the inward journey. Thank you so much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, Michael. Hi. This is Keva again. Yeah. Uh, Michael, um, can you explain on when the person dies, is it only the physical body that dies, or all the other sheets also die? And also, can you explain uh, these five sheets in relation to the three sariras and the three gunas? Okay. Um, generally, in the older texts, it is said that when the gross body dies, the subtle body goes on to a, and takes a rebirth. The subtle body generally According to a text, the subtle body means pranamaya kosha, manamaya kosha, and uh, vijnanamaya kosha. These three middle koshas are called the, uh, the, the subtle body. But Bhagavan has said in two places, in verse 24 of Uludunapadu, he, he says ego is nupame. Nupame means the subtle body. And also at the end of the fourth paragraph of Nana, he says, Maname, the mind alone, 
is the soup is is what is uh, call is what is called the subtle body and jiva. He, the word he uses here for subtle body is sukshma sarira. So obviously here he's not talking about sukshma sarira as three of the five sheaves. Because the reason for this, again, Bhagavan is clarifying what is given in, in, in the older texts. What actually goes from life to life is, I mean, the continuity is ego. But ego always takes along with it its vasanas. So the vasanas, that they Anandamaya kosha, they are the seeds that give rise to the other four koshas. That is why when, when the body dies, in effect, um, we lose all the koshas, except we, we take along with us the Anandamaya kosha, which is the, the other koshas in their seed form. That is why, generally, we don't have memory of past lives because memory is to do with the manamaya kosha. So, in in a sense, the my the, the the all the other sheaves die. That's one way of explaining it. Bhagavan says in in the eighth paragraph of Nana, he says but the, the, the mind keeps the body the prana in the body. So long as the body is alive, when the body dies, the mind takes the prana along with it. But what does he mean? Do we take our breath along with us? No, it's the it's the vasanas that give rise to the prana. It's the prana in the so we take all the four she all the other four sheaves along in the form of vasanas. We can say we take the seeds of the other sheaves along with us. So, but understand? I mean. We can explain these things, but ultimately all these things are anatma. They're all other than ourself. So we need not be too concerned about these things. Well, the basic principles we need to understand, but what goes from life to life is ego. What's, what's, what's common between one dream, each life is a dream, a dream. What's common between one dream and the next dream is the dreamer. So dreamer is ego, but the dreamer always takes with itself its vasanas. So it's the vasanas that, uh, that get projected as the new body and the new world. Is that a satisfactory answer? Yes. So does it mean that uh, when the person dies, the ananda mayakosa remains and is uh, taken by the ego for the next life? You can say it in that way, yes. And it doesn't matter how you say it. I mean, but simple ways just to say ego takes its vasanas with it. There's no such thing as anandamaya kosha other than vasanas. So yes, you can say if you want, it takes the anandamaya kosha with it. But in taking the anandamaya kosha, it's in effect, uh, take, in effect taking all the koshas because the anandamaya kosha contains the seeds of all the other koshas. Okay. Now, in relation to the three gunas, sattva, rajas, and tamas, uh, do they mutually influence one with another? I mean, the five koshas and the three gunas. The gunas are qualities of, uh, yeah, they're qualities of the mind. Yes, but yeah, all, all the five, all the five sheaths are affected by gunas. So, so long as we're looking outwards, we're under the influence of gunas. 
these gunas are gunas of what is manifest. That is, they're gunas of the mind, they're gunas of the, the five sheaths. They can either be in a sattvic condition or a rajasic condition or a tamasic condition. But we, our real nature, is gunatita, is beyond all the gunas. So um, we need not... Uh, we, we know that the turning within sattvic state of mind is most conducive. That doesn't mean that we have to wait for a sattvic state of mind. We should always be trying to turn within, but it is having a sattvic state of mind is favorable. It's We'll feel more inclined to turn within when our mind is in a sattvic condition than when it is in a tamasic or rajasic condition. That's all we need to know. We need not be too much, too concerned about these things, these gunas and so on. Ultimately, they're all, all these things, all these five sheaves, we need to have a basic understanding, but we shouldn't attach too much importance to these things because, as Bhagavan said, this is like Bhagavan says, uh, we shouldn't be analyzing and enumerating the different tattvas, but conceal oneself. So, uh, the, all these are different tattvas. So, let us. A basic understanding, a basic principles we need to understand, but we don't have to analyze these things too much because these are all uh, anatma, they're all anya, they're all something other than ourselves. What are we here for? We are here to know one thing and one thing alone. Who am I? As Bhagavan says in the end of the first uh, uh, sentence of Nana, Oneself, knowing oneself is necessary. That we have to bear in mind. Okay, thank you, Michael. Okay, you're welcome. You're welcome. Oh, Michael, uh, this is Sri. Um, that was a great explanation. Uh, so, just to put this into uh, uh, the concepts that we have learned into perspective, I have one question. Uh, let's hit uh, 12 o'clock today. We go to our, our own lives and we have, you know, everyone has their own, you know, busy schedule they follow and all the pressures. And uh, there are, you know, inevitable situations that arise in, you know, everyday life and including today, I'm pretty sure some of us, uh, which are almost like mission critical. And uh, and we talked about, you know, um, all the five koshas and how, you know, we are the, you know, um, we are, we are not any of these, but we are the experiencer. And how do I put that into perspective when there is there is a very you know uh, difficult situation that is going on, and uh, and 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 make sure I'm not sucked into the in the situation, uh, but still you know be you know be true to the the concepts we have learned we have discussed today, and still justify the mission that is going on there. All this outward life, this is all samsara. We are all caught up in samsara. So long as we rise as ego, we take ourselves to be a body, we are caught up in samsara. Life is constantly throwing problems at us. As you say, once this meeting is over, we go out and life will, we, we can never, we cannot. Some, sometimes Bhagavan used to say, when people say, I want to renounce the world, Bhagavan said, where will you go renouncing the world? Do you want to hang up in the sky? <laughs> that is, the only way to renounce the world is to renounce ego. What is the connection we have with this world? It is only ego. 
So it's only by eradicating ego that we can be free of samsara. So samsara will remain for all of us until ego is eradicated. Uh, so what we in the midst of all this samsara, we just have to remember what is the purpose of our life. This is a dream. But does this dream have any purpose? Can we make put this dream to any good use? The only good use we can put it to is by trying to wake up. Because we haven't woken up yet, when this dream comes to an end, we'll fall asleep and again we'll dream another dream and then another dream and another dream. So we should make use of this precious opportunity to try and wake up. We, the sleep we are sleeping now is the sleep of self-ignorance. So to disperse this sleep of self-ignorance, otherwise called ego, we need to know what we actually are. So the whole purpose of our life, however much, the, the, whatever problems the world may throw at us, it's not the world actually, it is Bhagavan throwing these problems at us, <laughs> whatever problems he may throw at us, we need to remain centered in what is real, that is I am. All these problems are for whom? They're for me. That in me there is referring to ego. That they are not for my real nature. They are not for what I actually am. They are for what for the one I seem to be. So we just we we need to constantly keep at the forefront of our mind what is our real aim. Whatever be the problems of life, there are so many problems. We're all facing problems day in, day out, of one kind or another. Even if you, even if you take sannyasa and go and sit in a cave or in a monastery or something, there will still be problems there. So long as there's a body and a mind, there are problems. <laughs> so how do we free ourselves from this body and mind? Only by freeing ourselves from... Ego, the one who is aware of itself as I am this body and mind. I am these five she's. That explains. Thank right. you. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Uh, Rabbi is asking, how is it then that in rare cases, people have memories from their previous life if the memory is left behind on death? Because even the, the seeds of everything is the vasanas. So, so long as the vasanas are there, but people, we, we shouldn't come fuse that is often you will find in uh, books on advaita they will translate chittama's memory that is a fundamental a very prevalent confusion chittam is not the memory memory is a function of the manamaya the manas the, it's a grosser function of the mind but the seeds of everything are, are the vasanas. So even the seeds of the memories are the vasanas. So there is a there is a sort of tenuous connection. So by um, some people are able to be put into a state of hypnosis, for example, when they can remember, or some people get flashes of memory. Sometimes children remember certain things about their past life. It fades as they grow older. So these, they, there can be a continuity because ultimately it's the same dreamer dreaming all these dreams. But um, it's at a, it, it's the, the, the memories are continuing at a deeper level than the usual superficial level of the memory. 
But again, this is all analyzing what is not ourselves. We need not concern ourselves with these things. We can go on asking these questions uh, ad infinitum for till all for all eternity. We can go on asking these questions, but are they useful? This is what science is doing. It's constantly trying to know more and more about other things. As Bhagavan says in in Anmavide, uh, what is the use of knowing all else without knowing oneself? And what else is there to know when oneself is known? So we need to keep, we need to be single-minded. We need to keep the focus. What is the aim of all these things? It is knowing ourselves. What does it matter if memories of past life are there or not there? What is it to us? Those memories are not uh, Anya, they're not me, they're Anatma, they're something other than myself. Who am I? That should be our concern. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Aranachala Ramana Anya 